Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. We are down to just four teams left in college basketball's biggest tournament. BetOnline has you covered with all of the lines, the odds, the props, and more for this championship weekend. Head over to their website or use your mobile device to sign up today and get a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit using the promo code BLEAV, B-L-E-A-V. BetOnline, where the game starts. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However and whenever it is, you may be listening. Thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of The Take it easy podcast live on the believe podcast network except it isn't live because it's a podcast welcome in everybody it is march 30th according to my count it may not be that according to your count but we appreciate you stopping in however and whenever you may be listening. We have a fantastic show coming at you today. We're going to talk about the NBA a little bit later with two new friends of the show who I got to talk to filling in on Razor's Red Zone podcast. That is, of course, the podcast with our friend Razor Rosenthal. Nick Whalen, he is an editor over at RotoWire. We talk NBA with him. We also talk to Trevor Lane. He hosts the Lakers Nation podcast and the front office show. He's also got a shit ton of followers on Twitter, so you should also be one of those followers on Twitter. Not to shamelessly plug too much. We don't like to shamelessly plug too much here on this lovely podcast. You already know all the great stuff. You know how the drill works. We've done now what is it, 897 episodes of this here fine podcast, so you guys kind of know the drill a little bit here. So, we will get to them in a bit. I have a really, really fun first A block here today, and it's going to take up a big chunk of the show, similar to how the oral history of Gonzaga took up a big chunk of the show last Thursday, which you can check out, or how our Tyreek Hill story took up 30 minutes yesterday, which you can also check out on the same podcast feed. I'm really excited to talk about this story, and by the way, it's also available on YouTube. If you want to see me talk about this story with slightly lower audio quality, check out our YouTube channel. Just getting all the shameless plugs out on the front end of today's podcast so that we don't have to shamelessly plug the entire way through the show. For our main topic here today, let's talk about the Buffalo 
Bills. But we're not going to talk about the Buffalo Bills as in the Buffalo Bills, the NFL team that has captured America's attention over the last two seasons with an AFC championship run during a pandemic 2020 season and in 2021 being 13 seconds away from going to the Super Bowl and possibly winning the Super Bowl and being the second best team only behind the Kansas City Chiefs and the great pride of the Kansas City Chiefs dynasty of which I would like to make a documentary about sometime here over the summer the Kansas City Chiefs prevented the Buffalo Bills from being a champion in a world where the Kansas City Chiefs don't exist the Buffalo Bills might win a Super Bowl over the past two seasons Josh Allen is one of the great stories of any NFL player over the past like 10 years in terms of the developmental process and pure athletic gifts to then becoming one of the two or three best players in all of the NFL. When I said in 2020, uh, I believe it was August of 2020, that Josh Allen was going to be benched and replaced by Dak Prescott for the Buffalo Bills, which oof, that did not age well. But we're not going to talk about that Buffalo Bills here today. We're going to talk about news that came in to Buffalo yesterday. And that news is brought to us courtesy of the, I, I want to make sure we get the credit correct here because there is great journalism being done here. This is courtesy of buffalonews.com. The Buffalo News is a newspaper out of Buffalo. And yesterday, an agreement was reached between the city of Erie County and the state of New York and the NFL and the Buffalo Bills on a $1.4 billion stadium being built for the Buffalo Bills sometime in the near future. The stadium will be worth $1.4 billion and approximately $850 million of that will be funded by the taxpayers of the state of New York and of Erie County, which is the county that Buffalo resides in. We will get to that part of it in a second. Some details on this story first to go back a little ways. So the Buffalo Bills have been fighting for years to get a new stadium in the Buffalo area and in Erie County. And this was long before the NFL built billion-dollar stadiums in San Francisco, a.k.a. Santa Clara, and billion-dollar stadiums in Los Angeles, and billion-dollar stadiums in Las Vegas, which have been the most recent developments of major new stadiums being built in these NFL markets. Back in the 2000s, the Buffalo Bills were owned by Ralph Wilson, and Ralph Wilson was an octogenarian, which means in his 80s, owner of the Buffalo Bills, who had owned the team since its original inception back in the 1960s as an AFL team with O.J. Simpson, that then in the AFL-NFL merger, thanks to O.J. Simpson, was then brought into the league in a really weird place for football to be played. Buffalo, New York, is an incredibly strange place for football to emerge. It's a sport in the basically by Niagara Falls. It's a city right by Niagara Falls. It's a small town in New York. It's, you know, Erie County which suggests it's near Lake Erie, and Buffalo is a is a town that has the Buffalo Bills as an NFL team and a, a 
hockey team, and that's about it. It also gets really, really cold in the winter, and a lot of people just say that it's like a suburb of Toronto. It's just right across the river, right across Niagara Falls from Toronto. And so Buffalo is one of the smallest cities of which professional football resides. The great joke about the last like 15 to 20 years of, or I guess really 30 years, because NBA expansion was in the 1990s predominantly, but the the great joke about expansion for years and years was that the NBA kind of got the shitty real estate when they have teams in Salt Lake City as the only professional team, Orlando as the only professional team, Sacramento as the only professional team. But the NFL has a couple of these examples, too, and Buffalo is the one that you can point to and say it's the most predominant poor real estate that the NFL can get only by size of the city and economic evaluations. This has nothing to do with the city of Buffalo as a city. This is just purely based on economic evaluations. Buffalo is a smaller economic engine of a city than, say, 50 or so cities in America, and when there's 32 cities in America as a whole, Buffalo falls in somewhere after 32, and yet they also still have something that one could argue in the past is an incredible economic engine for a city, which is a professional football team. And so Buffalo is this weird carve-out exception of a city in the NFL, but then they also experience massive football success in the 1990s that lead to them upgrading their old stadium at a time like that was an old guard NFL thing. You didn't really need gigantic stadiums. You didn't the, the NFL only in the 90s and into the 2000s once expansion was no longer a concern started thinking about building gigantic stadiums and giant, you know, and the, these Owning these stadiums was an economic engine for the NFL. And we'll get to that part in a little bit, but just that's the preface for the situation is that you could just renovate stadiums. Everyone wanted a new stadium, but it wasn't a demand to get a new stadium as Al Davis had to move like to three different cities and still didn't get a new stadium built for him until the 2010s after, you know, seven years after his death. Does he actually get a stadium built when he moved the Raiders from Oakland to Los Angeles to Oakland and then his son took the team to Vegas? Across 40 years, couldn't get a new stadium built. But it wasn't the massive economic engine that, in a post-Dallas Cowboys world, is something that every sports team begins to demand because Jerry Jones was a leader on turning the NFL into a corporation. And one of the places that he led building a ridiculous palace of a football stadium in a suburb of a major city. Dallas is a major American city, you know, top 10, top 15 largest city in America, massive economic engine in the state of Texas. He built the giant stadium in part with taxpayer money, but overwhelmingly with Jerry Jones's own money. And it wasn't a massive economic engine. It's just that when you're creating the valuations of sports teams, Having a billion-dollar stadium that you own is great for building the value of that franchise because essentially the value of a franchise is all of the assets you own put together. And so if you own a $1.5 billion stadium, when in the past your stadium was only worth $200 million, well, that's part of the massive economic boom that NFL teams have experienced where now every NFL team is worth over a billion dollars with or without a gigantic brand new stadium, a lot of which was always publicly funded. 
which we'll talk about that in a little bit. But let's start off with Buffalo Bills still. So we move into the 2010s. Ralph Wilson dies, and the city decides that they're going to renovate the old stadium by spending a modest $200 million to renovate the old Buffalo Stadium, add, you know, make some improvements, uh, build out more seats, things of those sorts. And when Ralph Wilson dies, the team is put up for sale. And there's the famous part of Donald Trump trying to buy the Buffalo Bills, and he's rejected by the NFL because if you go back to the old USFL, Donald Trump tried to own the New Jersey team and then merge with the NFL, and he was willing to blow up the entire league in order to make it, in order for him to get an NFL team, which is in the book that Jeff Perlman wrote on the USFL, where Pete Rozelle tells Donald Trump, as long as I shall live, you will never own an NFL team. And so after Pete Rozelle dies, Donald Trump tried to buy the Buffalo Bills. He got rejected. Then a year later makes his run for president and all of the what-if situations after that. John Bon Jovi is part of the group that ends up getting the Buffalo Bills behind Terry and Kim Pagulia. And then they are the people who own the Buffalo Sabres. And they took out loans and put up the money in order to purchase the Buffalo Bills, which I believe at the time was around $1.5 billion, I'm not 100% sure, about the same price that the stadium now is proposedly going to be worth. So the Buffalo Bills get a new ownership group, and there's a sort of cause correlation between the new ownership group and the turnaround of the franchise. Their second real hire as new owners was general manager Brandon Bean. And Brandon Bean was the one who hired Sean McDermott from Carolina. They had a few really good drafts in there of the football team. And, you know, on their second try, they basically turn around the Buffalo Bills franchise, who between 2000 and 2015 did not make the playoffs. It was the longest, or sorry, I think 2017, actually. I think it was a 17-year playoff drought for the Buffalo Bills. So the Bills go 17 years without making the playoffs. They have a new GM, a new coach on their second try, because first try they hired Rex Ryan and it didn't work out. But second try, they get the GM and the coach right, and that GM drafts, you know, Tredavious White as a really great piece for the team. They build out an offensive line. Star Lele signs a big contract with them. Ed Oliver, they still have Kyle Williams as the one holdover from those years of mediocrity with the Buffalo Bills. They drafted Sammy Watkins at the top of the draft, which in the end didn't work out, but it was a great pick at the time for Buffalo. And the Bills start to build out this, also Ed Oliver in the mix there too. But Buffalo starts to build up this team that can compete in the AFC. And then they get the gift that every single sports franchise try, or every single NFL franchise at the very least tries to get, which is the star quarterback in the NFL draft. And Josh Allen slid in that 2018 draft. Don't forget, Josh Allen at pick seven was a trade-up by Buffalo with picks that they got to move down last year so Kansas City could get Patrick Mahomes. They end up moving back up to 13, or they move up from 21 to 13, then they move from 13 to 7, they draft Josh Allen, and Josh Allen is only there because Cleveland didn't pick him, even though he was Mel Kuyper's ninth or 10th highest graded quarterback prospect ever. 
The raw gifts were there. It took three years for Josh Allen to figure it out, but eventually Josh Allen becomes star quarterback of the Buffalo Bills. They trade for Stephon Diggs, and all of a sudden you see what's happened to the Buffalo Bills over the last two seasons. Having one of the four best quarterbacks in the NFL makes you a contender every single season. Now, what does that have to do with the new stadium for the Buffalo Bills? Well, for 20 years, they tried and tried to get a new stadium, and they couldn't get it with taxpayer dollars. And two things happened within the last five years. One, the Buffalo Bills are now a really, really good football team, which makes them really, really valuable to the city of Buffalo as not just an economic engine, a source of regional pride, and all those things we talk about with football. But also, NFL has gotten so big that every single team can command giant stadiums and the cities that they live in have to oblige in many of these cases. In smaller markets, the NFL can bully cities and states into paying for stadiums because they make a larger percentage of the economic value to the city and are a larger source of regional pride than, say, a Los Angeles, Las Vegas, San Diego, Oakland, or New York City. Remember, the New York Giants and New York Jets play in New Jersey. While they're called the New York Giants and New York Jets, they play right across state lines over in New Jersey. Why is that the case? Because New Jersey, as a state, would help fund that stadium for the Jets and Giants, in a way that the state of New York and the city of New York, state of New York, New York City, put them all together, would not pay for new stadiums for the Jets, Giants, or in this case, the Buffalo Bills. Because now we're going to move into, that's the timeline of the Buffalo Bills, to publicly funded sports stadiums. Publicly funded sports stadiums never drive economic value to the teams or to the cities. They are taking money from other public institutions. Schools is the easiest one to point to in this case, but you could also point to salaries for city employees. You can point to your trash and waste management products. Uh, You can point to anything that's publicly funded, like public services. You can point to roads, construction, whatever you want to point to. Those are just the easiest examples to throw out there. We could talk about like publicly funded defense attorneys, which helps uh, funnel the criminal justice system more efficiently. We can talk about all sorts of things that require public money. Public money has to be taken from somewhere else and added to a new sports stadium, which does not return value to the city in the same way that those other necessities are. Now, one of the ways is to raise taxes. People are generally opposed to raising taxes. It's just a, you know, landscaping. People generally don't like taxes being increased. But we can also ballpark this and say you can take money from somewhere else in order to give that money to the stadiums. The simplest way I can phrase this from the NFL standpoint is that the NFL realized kind of around 2006 when Jerry Jones was building a new stadium for Dallas. It's a little bit of an inflection point, but just ballparking it. New stadiums, you can go back to Al Davis in the 80s too, like Al Davis was ahead of the curve on all of this stuff, even if he could never find a city to build a new stadium. The NFL wants to be in a place where they want to have their cake and eat it, 
which is the NFL wants to have giant publicly funded, or sorry, giant stadiums, sometimes worth billions of dollars, that become entertainment hubs of an entire city. Sometimes stadiums as large as 80,000, 100,000 people, all sorts of extremities and things of these sorts because increasing the dollar value or increasing the value of those stadiums increases the value of the franchise because now you have this asset that is worth an incredibly large amount of money, which then increases the value of the franchise. The NFL wants to have their cake, which is giant lavish stadiums that increase franchise values and eat it at the same time, which is we don't have to pay for it. We can get giant stadiums that we don't have to pay for. And a lot of times cities in the past have caved because sports teams are a source of regional pride and no one wants to be the mayor. Also, people care a lot about sports. Like in the 70s, 80s, 90s, less so today, but more so back then, people really care about sports. And so one of the things that happens during this time period is publicly funded stadiums become something that's like, it's a source of regional pride. We will all pitch in and we will fund a new stadium, even if it means raising taxes every now and then. The 1980s economic models, you know, trickle-down economics, et cetera, et cetera, push people into more hostility towards taxes. Taxes become a more hostile political tool, and so raising taxes becomes an incredibly unpopular situation, which means that as NFL teams still get public funding, you know, convincing people that, you know, spending money now will lead to economic engines for the city. Well, we have dozens upon dozens of examples to suggest that that is not the case. And what ends up happening is that the billionaires end up, or not the billionaires, I mean, now the billionaires, but at the time, the NFL owners that are now all billionaires end up reaping the profits on the back end when they sell the team or when they sell events at these new giant venues that can now host more people or you can raise the cost of tickets because more people want to go to your new cool stadium. All of that benefits the owners of the teams and does not bring back economic value to the city. I can post a bunch of links and things of these sorts uh, if you are interested in them. We now have dozens of examples across 30 to 40 years. It does not bring economic benefits to the city that they are in. So all of that is to say it's a really, really bad idea to publicly fund stadiums for the people of those cities. As much as it might hurt to lose your sports team sometimes, it's a really bad idea to publicly fund stadiums and uh, really, really good for the top 1%, which in this case is NFL owners. Ends up hurting the people who are paying for the stadiums because that money is being diverted from somewhere that more directly affects them. As much as people really like sports, your government salary, your government employee salaries, paying for public defenders, paying schools, things of those sorts, more directly impact your life than they do uh, a, a new publicly funded sports stadium. A sports stadium, le as much as sports might matter, it less directly impacts your life than it does these other things that we're talking about. And the solution could be to raise taxes. For example, the state of Florida poses 
uh, when they when the Miami Marlins got their new stadium, which is was regarded as the death of the publicly financed stadium, was the Miami Marlins getting it. No one goes to the stadium, and the Miami Marlins sell for $1.2 billion off the backs of the city of Miami. One of the ways that they funded the stadium was a hotel tax and a tax on tourism, which in essence, you know, theoretically drives down the amount of tourism that comes to Miami. But if it's a negligible amount, then the the amount of tourism doesn't change dramatically enough where the city of Miami is, well, also the, the back end of that is that if taxes increase and you want to maintain the same amount of tourists, you lower the price of whatever it is that you're selling, which then brings in less revenue to the businesses of Miami, which negatively impacts the city of Miami. But you could make the argument that taxes on tourism or taxes on hotels, that's a way to generate revenue. The flip side is Buffalo can't do that. Buffalo doesn't have outside sources of revenue that they can then bring to the NFL and say, here's how we're going to publicly finance a stadium. The money has to be diverted from somewhere else. And the thing that's changed over the past 15 years, while the Buffalo Bills have tried to get this new stadium funded, the value of NFL stadiums has gone so high up because NFL teams know that they need that stadium to be a viable NFL fr- to be a viable NFL franchise or at least that's what they're selling to the city is if the Sa- if the Los Angeles stadium is worth 4 billion dollars and the Las Vegas stadium is worth 2 billion dollars then we need a stadium that is at least 1 billion dollars or 1.4 billion dollars or whatever it may end up being to compete in the 21st century sports landscape, which is more specifically the 21st century NFL landscape. Because NBA stadiums, as lavish as they may be, do not sell for the same rates as NFL stadiums. NBA stadiums are smaller in nature, they fit less people, you sell less there. The Sacramento Kings Stadium, which is about 15 minutes uh, to my north, uh, that stadium was built in 2013 and was approximately $700 million, almost entirely financed by the Sacramento Kings and the city of Sacramento. The city of Sacramento got a really good deal on that stadium. It was only about, uh, I believe, 40-something percent was funded by the city of Sacramento, which is better than the average, which over the past... 20 or so years from smaller market teams is 73% of public contributions. But this is data from 1990 to 2010. Post 2010, a lot of stadiums that have been financed have gone way down in value. The San Francisco 49ers, for example, when they got their new stadium, they moved to Santa Clara Santa Clara County because Santa Clara County was willing to put up more money than the city of San Francisco in order to build that new stadium and it was just really bleeping expensive to build in San Francisco so they moved to the suburbs the Chicago Bears are talking about moving out of Soldier Field they're going to do a suburb move the Atlanta Braves when they built their stadium suburb move because the suburbs 
you know, for all of the, the white flight of the 1950s and economic inequality in America and all of that stuff, suburbs have more money than the, the counties that many of the downtown area, the, many of the downtown cities don't have the same economic value as the suburbs just because there's a lot of white people in the suburbs and white people because of economic inequality and, une- and systemic racism and all of the and economic inequalities, all of these things, there's just more money there to fund publicly financed stadiums if that's what you so choose to do with your money. Because again, the suburbs shouldn't be publicly financing stadiums either. They just have more disposable income to do so. So all of this is to say that from 1990 to 2010, 73% of public contributions in NFL markets, and this is you know 20 years of data, most have gone down since then. The new Buffalo Bills stadium is going to be 61% publicly financed, which is lower than the 1990 to 2010 average, but is way more than the recent examples that we're talking about with San Francisco and Atlanta, and most recently, the new Las Vegas Raiders stadium. The new Las Vegas Raiders stadium is $1.9 billion and $750 million is being funded through gambling taxes with the state of Nevada and also uh, the county that Las Vegas is in, which I don't remember what the name of the county is, but Las Vegas and the state of Nevada are paying $750 million of the $1.9 billion stadium, which if you, you ballpark that comes out to roughly 40%. Ballpark 40% of that stadium is being paid for by the taxpayers of or Las Vegas, or just publicly financed in general. It's not taxpayers in this situation because it's gambling taxes, so it's a lot of people coming from out of Nevada. Public financing, instead of the billionaires paying for the stadiums, it's publicly financed about 40%, which is a great deal for the Raiders. The Raiders had been looking for that for years. It was always zero, 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 or not enough. You know, it was 22%. It was 23%. And Al Davis never found a deal that was worth it for him. And only when Mark Davis moves out of the state of California, do they get a publicly financed stadium. So here's the breakdown of the funding for the Buffalo Bills stadium specifically. Now, I guess here, well, first of all, here are the conclusion points from publicly financed stadiums. One, Taxpayers or public financing should not fund stadiums because most of the time it has to divert revenue from somewhere else. People could raise taxes to fund that stadium. Usually doesn't happen just because people are generally opposed to raising taxes. It's politically not viable to get such a deal done. So generally, you have to take money from somewhere else to publicly finance stadiums. Number two, people generally... Uh, or sorry, peop- there is no economic value to the people who are paying for it. Overwhelmingly, that money goes to the top 1%, aka the person who owns the stadium, when they put on events and make revenue from this new stadium, and when they sell their team to someone else, it becomes an incredibly valuable asset, sometimes a billion dollars more than what the franchise was worth prior to building the stadium, of which they pay taxes on, But as we know, there are loopholes to getting around tax codes that the top 1% are really adept at doing. It's a lot harder in a team sale, but it's still doable to get around taxes. It's why all these teams and all these colleges and universities, athletic departments report losses because it's for tax purposes. 
And the reason they're able to report losses is because they spend so much money so quickly. It's why the NFL puts in a salary cap is to stop these billionaires from spending so much money and lowering the values of their teams because team valuation in a corporation supersedes all as you appease the, I mean, the the theoretical quote-unquote shareholders like a corporation does where shareholder profit is is valued above all else. Franchise valuation on the sales is valued above all else for NFL teams. It is an economic engine, which that leads us into the third point, which is the Buffalo Bills stadium specifically and small market NFL teams. If we were articulating this from a pure capitalism standpoint, the NFL would put teams in the 20 largest cities in America They would either pay for their stadiums or they would convince those places to help publicly finance stadiums because the NFL wants to put themselves in the largest cities and largest markets possible. The thing is, the NFL has 32 teams and there are not 32 giant cities in America. So the NFL still has a purpose for small market teams because the NFL needs 32 places to put their teams. Now, they theoretically could just have eight stadiums and have four teams in Los Angeles, four teams in New York, four teams in Houston, four teams in Miami, four teams in San Francisco, or any other place that's willing to publicly finance a stadium worth $2 billion. Nevada, another one. You know, They put a team in Nevada put four teams in Nevada, put four teams in New York, and have them share stadiums. That's something that might actually end up happening 100 years from now if the NFL continues on this path. But for the time being, the NFL still has a value for smaller cities, even if they aren't as economically viable. What they're going to try and do in the meantime is cheat the rules a little bit in order to increase profits. And it's not necessarily cheating rules, it's just skirting weird boundaries. For example, the New York the New York Giants New York Jets stadium. They built it in New Jersey because New Jersey has no state income tax and because New Jersey was willing to help pay to publicly finance the stadium, which New York City and New York State were not willing to do. The Vegas Raiders moved to Vegas because Oakland was not willing to build a stadium with public dollars. And the same reason why the Athletics are about to move to Las Vegas. Vegas will help pay for your stadium, which will then increase property valuations. Or you could just take out a loan and build the stadium yourself, but that decreases profits because then you have to pay back interest on this loan that you're taking out if you're the owner of the Raiders or owner of the Athletics or owner of the Giants and Jets. The Chargers had the same situation. They could have taken out a loan and built a stadium in San Diego, but it would have lowered their profits. If you can get money from the cities and the states that you play in, that's all free money that will then turn into profits for you later on, which we talked about in part two. That's the basic economics of funding stadiums. It does not help the cities. It is just a way to give profits to the top 1% which in this case is whoever owns the team. I've reiterated that a couple times now. It's important to bring that back up. But the NFL still has value for smaller cities. One, because they don't have enough places to put NFL teams. But two, 
because they can leverage smaller cities. In a pure capitalistic economic enterprise, they can leverage smaller cities based on regional pride. And sometimes it works like with Miami, where they convince Miami to build a new stadium. But if you're Buffalo, Cincinnati, the New Orleans Pelicans in the NBA, the Minnesota Timberwolves in the NBA, these are all cities that are talking about relocation. I mean, maybe less so with the Pelicans and and Timberwolves, but with the Bengals and with Buffalo, it's a huge sense of regional pride to have an NFL team. And so because there's less entertainment options in those cities, assuming that, you know, entertainment budgets are relatively equal across all places, like people relatively enjoy entertainment about the same, regardless of what city you live in, you still crave some measure of entertainment. You're no more likely to enjoy entertainment in Orlando than you are to in Boston or you are to in Los Angeles. If we ballpark that relatively and you're competing for entertainment options, there's just fewer entertainment options in Cincinnati and Buffalo. And so that becomes that means their NFL team is worth more to them and worth more to the city proportionally, even if the Buffalo Bills are only worth $2 billion while the Dallas Cowboys are worth $6 billion or while 80% of the Carolina Panthers is worth $2.6 billion, like what David Tepper paid for it. Even if Buffalo is worth less, proportionally it's still worth more to the city. And that means the NFL can leverage the city into funding a new stadium. And either the cities have a choice to either say we're out and, you know, politically that's a bad decision for um, governments, at least in the 2022. It's less of a problem than it was, say, 20 years ago when getting a new stadium would be your entire campaign policy. (laughs) Like sometimes that's what people cared about more than anything else. I think people are slightly more informed on their political decisions in this case, or at least they just care less about funding a sports stadium when electing their politicians, in part because sports aren't as relevant as they were in the 21st, uh, in the 20th century because there's just way more entertainment options available. So you're looking at a situation where Cincinnati, Buffalo, uh, you could point to Nashville and the stadium they're trying to get there. All of these places can be leveraged when the team has more of an economic engine or is more of a economic engine proportionally than it is for other cities as great as the rams and chargers stadium is in the scope of los angeles it's less valuable to los angeles even at six billion dollars or four billion dollars or whatever that new stadium is worth even at whatever the price is it's still worth less to the city of los angeles then the Buffalo Bills stadium is worth to the city of Buffalo because Buffalo doesn't have that many other options that are bringing sources of revenue to Buffalo. And sure, it may be sources of revenue just for the billionaires, but there is a slight economic impact of having an NFL team. Now, having an NFL team will bring money to the city because people fly in, people dine in restaurants, people tourism. It's a form of tourism. Even if the game itself is being, um, you know, the, the money is only going to the team, uh, the team pays some level of taxes, the hotels pay some level of taxes, restaurants pay some level of taxes. It's an easy way to generate revenue for the city, which they can then spend on everyone else. Just a 
basic economic idea is that NFL teams good for the city, even if that city doesn't quite get, for example, the revenue on game day. The problem is when the city publicly funds a stadium, that makes it so all of the money from restaurants and from entertainment is then going to the Buffalo Bills because you then have to make the money back to then pay to the Buffalo Bills or to pay to the NFL team. Every public dollar that gets funded takes revenue away from the city that would be generated by having that team. And again, across 20 years, 30 years, we have dozens of of data points to suggest publicly funding stadiums only decreases revenue because you're taking it from somewhere else. And there's not enough revenue being generated from non-people, from from people not from Buffalo, staying in hotels, you know, buying food, things of those sorts. It's not enough to offset the costs of a new publicly financed stadium, which is why cities should never publicly finance stadiums. And by the way, NFL stadiums have got to be so expensive that Buffalo can't fund a stadium. There's just no way the city of Buffalo can generate $1.4 billion even across 40 years. There's just no way that Buffalo can get that kind of revenue. So here's the breakdown of the money on the new Buffalo Bills stadium. The solution they came up with is kind of diabolic, diabolical and also kind of sneaky in its creation. $600 million of this new stadium, that's you know roughly 40-something percent, the same amount that Las Vegas and the state of Nevada paid for the Raiders stadium. $600 million is going to be funded by the state of New York, and $12.7 million per year will be spent to maintain the stadium by the state of New York. $250 million is going to be spent by Erie County, which is where Buffalo is. And $75 million of that $250 million comes directly from the 2021 budget surplus that the Buffalo City, that this uh, Erie County had last season. This is again courtesy of the Buffalo News. Uh, all these data points are available in the link to this episode. That's $850 million plus $12.67 million per year of maintenance being funded by state taxes and city taxes, city revenue, city revenue and state revenue for the Buffalo Bills Stadium. $300 million plus additional costs, like cost overruns, $300 million being paid for by the Buffalo Bills, $200 million loan from the NFL to be paid back over time, and the stadium will be owned by the state of New York. And that is a big concession, that the state owns the stadium means that, yes, the Bills can collect revenue from putting on events, but the Buffalo Bills have to pay the state of New York a lease to run that stadium. It is not owned by the Buffalo Bills. And that's a major concession in victory for, if you're going to publicly finance a stadium, at least some of that revenue will get to be made back by the state of New York. But there is a massive economic engine for the Buffalo Bills because the Buffalo Bills can list that as an asset 
whenever the Pagulias want to sell their team. And they made clear that they wanted to stay in Buffalo. They just didn't have the money up front to do it. Instead of taking out a loan, they took out a loan essentially with the state of New York to fund their stadium. So it's not as bad as some of the other situations. It's not like the Bills own the stadium and they can then profit on the revenue and just pay taxes to the city. They do have to, pres- theoretically, they have to pay a lease to the city to or to the state of New York in order to use that stadium. But it was also the only way they were going to get the money to make that happen was by having New York own their stadium. Erie County if they could own the stadium, would be a a little bit of a revenue source because the Bills would have to pay a lease. Now they could negotiate in the contract. It's a $1 lease. Or maybe the Bills negotiate in the contract, which we just don't know the details yet. Maybe we find out the Bills negotiated a $1 lease with the state of New York. And so the Bills get to keep all of that additional revenue from essentially getting a free lease with the state of New York. We just don't know the details of that yet. And that would be cynical to say that would be the case. I hope that New York charges the Buffalo Bills a lease on that stadium. It might not happen, but it is a possibility there. So 61% of this stadium is going to be funded by the taxpayers in New York. And the NFL does still have a purpose for Buffalo because now they have this $1.4 billion stadium at a price point that is essentially the Buffalo Bills stadium. It, I mean, I don't know if it's going to have a dome or what the situation is going to be, but this is essentially the new home of the Buffalo Bills. Sure, it's not what Vegas and Los Angeles were, but those were higher priorities to the NFL because Vegas and Los Angeles can be gigantic economic engines for the NFL where they put the NFL draft in Vegas in a month. They put the Super Bowl in Los Angeles. They're going to put the Super Bowl in Vegas in two years. When Minnesota got a new stadium, they put the Super Bowl there and Minnesota paid the NFL more money to host the Super Bowl. That's the other trick. Super Bowl's not the same economic engines that you think they are for the NFL. I'm not sure how that's changed in the last five years, but back 10 plus years ago, you were losing money hosting a Super Bowl or hosting an NFL draft or things of those sorts because you had to pay the NFL for the right to host the event in your city. And by the way, the NFL is running the same gamut again with the draft. I saw like Kansas City and Detroit paid to have the draft. It's a revenue stream for the NFL to make the draft a road tour instead of just paying Radio City Music Hall to host the draft. Anyways, so maybe... Buffalo negotiates, or the Buffalo Bills negotiate a deal with the state where they only have to pay a $1 lease. That would suck. It would reflect not great progress in the situation. But the NFL gets what they want out of the situation, which is they get to keep the team in Buffalo for the time being. By the way, you know how I talked about largest cities would ideally be best for the NFL and why they moved to Los Angeles and why they went to Las Vegas? There's a reason The NFL is talking about moving the Jaguars to London. There's a reason they're talking about expanding to Mexico City. Larger, Mexico City, largest city in Mexico. I I don't know how many people it is. Let me fact check it real quick. Mexico City, by far largest city in Mexico. London, by far the largest city in England. And I think all of Europe. Mexico City has 8.8 million people. London has 8.9 million people. The city of Jacksonville has 
890,000 people. That is 10 times the population in Mexico City and in London than there is in Jacksonville. There's a reason they're trying to go. It's the same thing with the NBA. There's a reason the NBA is trying to go global. There is a reason that the NFL is trying to go global. By putting teams in different larger cities, it is a much larger economic engine for those teams, as we just saw by the Los Angeles Stadium, as we saw when the Golden State Warriors built a new stadium in downtown San Francisco, entirely privately funded, so they could keep all the revenue other than just getting the land for free, which is essentially a government point, government revenue point, but they basically got the stadium for tax without taxpayer dollars other than just the one spot of land that I think was gifted to them which is a you know progress it's a it's a big point of progress if we're just giving away land for free yeah it's slightly less revenue for the city whether it's millions of dollars in revenue it's still slightly better than actively taking money from other industries and putting them into sports stadiums so the conclusion for buffalo is it could have been worse. It could still be a lot worse because we don't have the details of the situation. Ideally, they wouldn't have the the Pegulias would have paid more than thir, uh, three hundred million of they they paid twenty percent. The Pegulias paid twenty percent into this stadium, and sixty one percent of it came from the Buffalo or came from the state of New York and came from Erie County. And ideally, they would have paid for all 80%. The other 20% is NFL loans. But ideally, they would have paid all 80% for their new stadium. Sure, it lowers your revenue, but so what? If you want something, you take out a loan, you build it, and then when you make the profits back, you give the money back to the person who's building out a loan. And the issue is, these NFL stadiums would not be as gigantic if people were spending that kind of money, as much as Stan Kroenke can build a $2 billion, whatever billion dollar stadium it is in Los Angeles, as much as Al Davis or Mark Davis can put in a million, uh, you know, $700 million to build a stadium in Las Vegas, not everyone can do that. Now, most NFL teams can do that now because franchise valuations are so high and NFL teams are so valuable. Not everyone can do that, but the NFL wants everyone to do it because as long as they can run the grift, it increases profits for some of these franchises, and by increasing profits, you then increase the value of everyone's franchise because if Las Vegas and Los Angeles and Minnesota and San Francisco are getting stadiums, it's time for Buffalo, it's time for Cincinnati, it's time for all of these teams to get new stadiums and if not they'll relocate them somewhere else even if the nfl doesn't like relocation they just did it to three different cities and damn it if they weren't going to do it to buffalo they still won't do it to cincinnati they will still do relocation it's a threat to the emotional connection of the fan base which is your team is in your city and by the way remember i grew up in san diego when i was 16 years old 10th grade chargers left and it was the greatest thing that ever happened in my life. It just took a long time to get to the place where I de-invested emotionally from a team that was supposed to bring regional pride and a team that was supposed to be the team I was rooting for as a child and how I was brought up in this sports landscape. It's okay. I know it sucks. 
but sports can't be that important that you're taking money away from things that actually matter and giving it to the top 1%. They're already running a gigantic grift on all of American society. And so this is another example of everything working in favor of the the owners in this case, which, you know, they, their franchise valuations increase and they get larger profits at the expense of everyone else. And so, again, it could have been a lot worse for Buffalo. It still could be a lot worse for Buffalo. The NFL still sees value in Buffalo for the time being, because instead of putting every team in one of the eight or nine largest cities in America, like, you know, the ones we always talk about the val- the valuations being so high, they'll still get money from this from the taxpayers and from the from public financing and if they can't get it from the city of buffalo to fully fund their stadium they'll go to the states and if they can't get it from the states they'll try different counties and then they'll try different states and they'll relocate teams until they can get every last bit of profit because that's how the corporation operates jerry jones spelled out the math of all of this stuff when he built Jerry World in Dallas or Arlington or wherever, whatever suburb they're building in. Because there's, again, if you can't build it in downtown, go to a suburb with more disposable income. It's not your fault that white flight means that the overwhelmingly white suburbs have more money that they can spend on sports stadiums. Even if it's bad economically for the suburbs, they just have more money so they can just say, F it, we'll just throw money at a sports stadium. We'll bring the Bears to suburb of Chicago. We'll bring... I think it's Arlington Heights. We'll bring the the Braves to Cobb County, suburb of Atlanta. We'll bring the 49ers to Santa Clara. Whoever's got more disposable income, we'll take it. Money's all the same to us. We'll get the increased profits. And yeah, we might have to drive another 40 minutes to get to our stadium, but you know what? It's worth the extra $500 million for the owner. And what is going to be at the expense of them? the consumer and the people who don't even consume football or any kind of stadium in the city, but are now dragged into having to help publicly fund that stadium because that money affects everyone in Erie County and everyone in the state of New York because it's money that could have, be, could have been spent elsewhere. And again, to conclude, could have been worse for the Buffalo Bills, could have been worse Still could be worse. Still not great that 61% of that stadium is going to be funded publicly, while the Pagulias, who will reap most of the profits from the stadium being built, will only be putting in 20% of the funding on that stadium. All right, so that is our story today. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, that took a lot of research to get into, so I hope you enjoyed it. Next up, we have... Trevor Lane and Nick Whalen talking some NBA basketball here on the podcast. This show is presented by Athletic Greens. We've told you about Athletic Greens before. With one scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to get your body right. Athletic Greens is one scoop in a cup of water every day and that's it to make it easy athletic greens is going to give you a free one year supply of immune supporting vitamin d that's 365 days worth of athletic greens all you have to do is go to athleticgreens.com 
believe. That's B-L-E-A-V. You can also use the link in the description to this episode. Athletic Greens, take ownership of your health. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Joining us here on the Razor's Red Zone is Nick Whalen. You can follow him on Twitter at Way. 1N, and he is the NBA editor over at Rotowire. Nick, how are you doing here today? I'm doing well, man. Uh, up early, looking forward to talking Eastern Conference. Absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, first and foremost, let's start off at the top with the Eastern Conference because I saw yesterday the standings, and then I opened it today, and it was like all four spots had changed overnight. Like Philadelphia went from one to four. Boston went from three to one. Everyone's separated by like a half game with two weeks to go in the season. So what do you make of everything that's gone on so far with uh, the parity of sorts at the top of the Eastern Conference? Yeah, I mean, like you said, that's been the case really for the last month or so. And and Boston, I think, has entered this mix. You know, for a while it was Miami, Milwaukee, Philly, Um, you know, depending how often you check the standings, those teams could be in really any order on any given night. And all of a sudden with, with Boston, uh, beating Minnesota yesterday with Philly taking another loss, uh, this time to Phoenix, another bad game from James Harden. Uh, all of a sudden, the Sixers are down and forth. Boston's all the way up to number one. Uh, and then, like you said, Miami, Milwaukee kind of shuffling around in those two, three spots. I mean, the way that the season's going, uh, we essentially have a little under two weeks left now uh, in the regular season, which ends on April 10th. I don't know that we're going to get you know a, a real answer as to how these teams shake out until maybe games 81 and 82. Um, and, and, you know, I think the fact that you have the Nets lurking down uh, currently at number nine, they're, they're going to be in the play-in. Um, it, it's going to, in some ways, I think, prevent teams from doing too much jockeying to try to avoid or try to line up against the Nets because we don't know if they're going to end up as the seven or the eight or, if you know, potentially they could miss the playoffs entirely. So you mentioned Boston a second ago, and Boston has had a crazy run of success over the last like two months. They're mm-hmm. number one rated defense in the league. They're still sitting at like plus 950 to win the championship right now. And mm-hmm. I've still argued they're like the fifth best team in the Eastern Conference right now. So what do you make of what's happened to them over the past two months or so? Well, they're 24 and four now over their last 28 games. Uh, and it, weirdly, their, their four losses in that span have come to Atlanta, Detroit, Indiana, and Dallas. So they've been <laughs> kind of strange ones. They've gotten tripped up on, on weird nights. Uh, but I think they have to be taken seriously at this point. I mean, they were 18 and 21, 39 games into the season. So essentially at the halfway point, they were under 500. Uh, and since then, they have the best defense by far in basketball. They have a 13.2 net rating since the All-Star break. That is far and away the best number in the NBA. Their offensive rating since the break is more than 10 points per 100 better than that of the Miami Heat since the, off, or since the all-star break. So all the numbers indicate that this is an ultra elite team, at least over the last 40 or 50 games. Uh, but there is still you know, kind of a hangup, it feels like, with Boston, where it's like, yes, Jason Tatum has emerged as maybe one of the seven or eight most dangerous players in the entire league. I, I think you know, over the last 35 games, he has been a top, play, top five player, excuse me, in the NBA, that's unassailable. The question is, who's the number two? You know, they, they've built this nice supporting cast where, you know, Jalen Brown, I, I think, is, is kind of the first answer. But there are some nights where you don't really feel as great about him uh, carrying that workload. You know, you add Derek White at the deadline. That's that's a nice addition, but it doesn't really feel like the type of piece that necessarily puts you over the top. But, man, the way they're playing, I mean, they like I said, they've been the most consistent team outside of the Phoenix Suns 
uh, for the last two thirds of the season. So they have to be taken seriously, but at the same time, I understand, you know, why they're still plus 950 because they simply don't have quite that same level of star power at the top as a team like Philly does, or as a team like Milwaukee does. And even a team like Miami doesn't necessarily have the star power, but just a couple of years ago, we saw that team make a run to the finals. So I think that's still fresh in the mind uh, of the betters and of the odds makers. So let's talk about Miami for a second, because Miami's been interesting because it's pretty much the same team or the same core of the team that was there back in 2020. And, you know, Giannis getting hurt in the bubble kind of changed the nature of that series a little bit. And they ended up making the run to the finals. But, mm-hmm. you know, I'd argue no team is deeper this year than Miami. But like you said, they don't have that top end star power uh, at the end of games or mm-hmm. someone who, you know, is could give you 20 points in a quarter or 20 points in a half or something like that who could take over. It might be Hero, might be someone else. But mm-hmm. what do you make of what Miami's had over the past, say, three months or so? Yeah, well, we, it feels like we barely ever see the complete version of the Miami Heat. And I mean, it would take you hours to like, you'd have to look at every individual game and say, okay, well, they had Hero, Butler, and Adebayo for this one, but Kyle Lowry was out, you know, when he missed like 15 games with a personal absence uh, over the second half. So like, they, we, it just feels like we haven't seen this team, you know, you, you could probably count the games on one hand where they've had every single key piece available. Uh, and in some ways, you know, you think about it and say, wow, that's, you know, that's really good for a team that's currently tied for first in the Eastern conference. But on the other hand, um, you know, you're essentially asking that team to kind of mesh on the fly in the playoffs when you finally do have all those pieces. And traditionally, you know, as you know, in the NBA, the teams that succeed tend to be the ones that are a little more top heavy. Obviously you need some depth as well, but uh, having multiple stars or multiple superstars is a recipe for winning NBA titles. And, you know, every now and then you'll, you'll get a team like the, the Mavs in 2011, you know, that have one really good star, uh, and then, you know, seven or eight great complimentary pieces. Um, and, you know, I, I think Miami kind of follows that style. Uh, you know, a player like Adebayo certainly could be an all-star in any given season. Kyle Lowry's been an all-star a number of times in his career. Uh, so they're really dangerous. But I don't know, I, there's just something about this team that I, I think offensively, I don't quite think they have that same gear that they could get to. I think defensively, they're going to give teams trouble. But, you know, the fact that your best player basically just has stopped shooting threes is, is not a threat from there whatsoever. Um, you know, you're, you're relying on your sixth man to kind of be your go-to off the dribble score. Like it's, it's a unique approach. They're really deep. They're not a team that anybody wants to play, but I, I, I still, t- to me, I would still put them behind Milwaukee for sure in the Eastern conference. And, and to me, they're kind of neck and neck with Philly, uh, maybe for that second best team. And, and obviously, you know, we haven't even talked about the Nets. Well, yeah, let's talk about the Nets now because the Nets are in a really unique position that I just don't know what to do with them at this point. Mm-hmm. They're going to be the lowest seed going into the playoffs, but they also have three stars that I think if you stack them up next to anyone else in the league, they've probably got the best group there. And obviously when we talk about top heavy talent, Kevin Durant is like right, right at the top of that. So what do you do with Brooklyn at this point? Cause I'm just waiting to see if they get mm-hmm. through the play in before actually making analysis with them. Right. And there's just not been a lot of value with the nets all year. And, you know, even if, and when they make it through the the play in, I, you know, that number probably comes down a little bit, you know, it got DraftKings right now, they're plus two fifty to win the East. And that just doesn't feel good enough for for a team that could potentially, you know, they're one loss away, depending on where they finish in the final standings from not even making the, you know, the 18 playoffs. So to me, like that risk is not really priced in and it hasn't been priced in all season. You know, they, they were, they were pretty much always the favorite, uh, you know, not only to win the East, but for much of the year to win the title. 
And that was when we had a ton of uncertainty with Kyrie Irving. That was when we you know, didn't even know that this Harden-Ben Simmons trade was coming. Uh, there, there's kind of been this overwhelming trust in the Brooklyn Nets, and I, I don't really quite understand it. I don't know if it's just Kevin Durant is that good. Uh, I'm, I'm certainly not going to fight you on that. But at the same time, you know, this supporting cast is not, not great around KD and, and Kyrie, and we have no idea when Ben Simmons is coming back. It's getting to the point now with less than two weeks remaining in the regular season that when he comes back, like you're, you're integrating a notoriously difficult to integrate player in the middle of the playoffs, you know, a guy who hasn't played basketball since around this time last year, like that's just a huge, huge question mark for me. And I I think it's very fair to say, are we going to see Ben Simmons at anywhere near his peak value this year? I don't, I don't think so. I think he's had too much time off. I think it's going to be too difficult to ask him to play a different role in a different city with different teammates. Uh, I, I don't think there's a lot of upside there with the Brooklyn Nets. So you know, all due respect to Kevin Durant, I, I think he's certainly capable of carrying this team. I, I think they do make it out uh, of the play-in round, but we've also seen this team drop two of its last three games with Kevin Durant and with Kyrie Irving in the lineup. Like the closest approximation to what we're going to see from this team in the playoffs as far as who's on the court. And you know, they just lost to a team that they could potentially be playing in the play-in last night, 12 hours ago, in the Charlotte Hornets. So uh, like I said, I, I think the biggest thing with me or for me with the Nets is there's just you're not you're not getting a discount based on the the amount of variance that there is with this team. So from a betting perspective, to me, I, I'm really not considering them. So I waited until the very end to talk about your beloved Milwaukee Bucks. Hmm. Uh, Giannis is right now plus 800 to win the MVP, and it seems like people have kind of gotten Giannis fatigue when it comes to mm-hmm. giving out the MVP award. He's averaging 30 points a game, 11 and a half rebounds, and six assists. He's true shooting percentage is in the 60s this year. So. What do you make of the Bucks this year? I've argued that behind the Suns, they're probably the best team in the league. Mm-hmm. And Milwaukee has been consistently pretty much about where they are right now, which is a 50-win team in an Eastern Conference with yeah. a lot of deep teams. What do you make of Milwaukee? Yeah, it, it kind of feels like Giannis is maybe being punished individually for the Bucks not quite being as good as people thought they would be this season. And Look, I still think there's a pretty good chance that when the dust settles on April 10th, they're the number one seed in the East. So I, I maybe I'm not sure what the expectations were. I think the, the East is so much deeper and so much better at the top this year than it's been in years past. So you know, you're going to look at the Bucks win total and say, wait, we thought this team was going to win 65 or 66 games. But I think you're, you're not necessarily factoring in uh, the increased competition and the increased strength of schedule that just simply hasn't been there for the bulk of their success uh, over these last few years. Uh, but I, I still like Milwaukee a lot. You know, you could get them at three to one uh, to, to win the East. You know, you could get them around like six to one to win the finals. I think they have the highest floor of any team in the Eastern Conference. Like obviously less than a year ago, we saw this team make it through the East. And, and yes, you know, there were some caveats. You know, the Nets were banged up. They played a, a less than impressive Hawks team in the Eastern Conference finals. But they also battled back from down 2-0 and won four straight against a really good Suns team in the finals. And I think this team went at full strength and like Miami, they haven't really been at full strength for most of the year. I mean, Brooke Lopez went out on opening night, you know, all of their kind of complimentary guards have been banged up at one point or another. Drew holiday missed time early on, you know, Giannis has kind of been the one constant for this team this season, but when they have everybody, I think they are much deeper than they were last year. You know, I think the Lopez injury led to them adding a player like Serge Ibaka for insurance. And, you know, now you have that guy is like your second or third center going into the playoffs. Whereas last year, it's like there were times where is Mamadi Diakite going to be, have to play in this game? You know, if enough guys get in foul trouble, like 
Jeff Teague was playing real minutes in the NBA finals. Like that's not happening this time around. So I'm still pretty confident in Milwaukee. I think the one thing that does worry me is the defense continues to fall off. You know, they were first in the league in defensive rating in both 2018 and 2019. Last year, that fell off to 10th. This year, they're down to 14th. Uh, of course, you could chalk that up to Brooke Lopez not being there, but uh, that, that's a little bit of concern, you know, the, the slippage on defense. But, man, overall, I, I think we've seen this from a lot of teams. You know, you win the title, there's a little bit of a swoon, and then the playoffs arrive, you crank things up, and you remind everybody, this is why we won the title last year. Is there anyone else that I didn't mention who you're interested in? They might not be a major player in the Eastern Conference, yeah. but... You know, I don't know. I mean... You know, like I, I think a month ago or maybe two months ago, we would have been talking about Chicago the same way that we're talking about Boston. I, I think Chicago had its peak in January, February. Boston's making its peak maybe at a better time in March and April. Uh, I, I, I don't think anybody, you know, ever really took the Bulls all that seriously as a contender. And if you look at the odds and how they've changed throughout the year, it's reflected there. Uh, but, but, you know, Chicago could be dangerous. Uh, again, I don't think they make a run all the way to the finals. But if we're looking at like, you know, we, we could get a Boston-Chicago first round series like that would be amazing I, I don't think the bulls are going to lay down right there i mean they they're their top three is as good as just about anybody's in the easter conference and you know once you get lonzo ball back in the mix assuming he can get healthy before the playoffs maybe that changes things but you know from a betting perspective i don't love that I and mean, one thing i did notice you could get the central division to win the finals at plus 550 so obviously you're getting the bucks there and then you're throwing in the bulls and the Cavs as as kind of these long shot bonus options so you know, I wouldn't recommend gambling on those teams specifically, uh, but but Chicago is the one team that I would keep an eye on to to maybe win a series or two, just because we've seen them look like the best team in the conference at times this season. You know, unfortunately, it was two months ago instead of right now. Nick Whalen, I appreciate your time. It's it's great to talk Eastern Conference basketball. Right. Uh, follow Dwyer and check him out on Twitter at Way1N if you want to find him. So, uh, Nick, I appreciate it. Thank you for your time this morning and getting up and talking basketball with us. Right. Joining us here on the Razor's Red Zone podcast is Trevor Lane, the host of the Lakers Nation podcast and the front office show. You can follow Trevor on Twitter over at Trevor underscore Lane if you want to check out all of his great content. Trevor, how are you doing today? Doing well, doing well. It's been a long season. We're getting close to the end here, but uh, but I'm doing okay. Hanging in there has, hasn't been easy for, uh, for Lakers fans, that's for sure. Oh, of course, yeah. I mean, there's five, six games left in the season, and the Lakers now find themselves fighting off, not making the playoffs at all, and... The Lakers are also kind of throwing in the towel a little bit at this point. There's there's not much left to play for, but they are one game ahead of the Spurs. They are hanging right around with the Pelicans at this point. So what happens for the Lakers this offseason, uh, regardless of whether they make the playoffs or miss the playoffs or lose in the play-in scenario, whatever happens there, what do you think the move is for them? Yeah, I mean, regardless of where things go from here, it's pretty clear that a championship is is not on the horizon. They've got a lot of things they're going to have to do this offseason to try to fix that. A lot of the things that they did last year 
just didn't work, completely blew up in their face. And that's evidenced by where they are currently in the standings. And so that means they've got a lot of work to do this coming summer. And it's going to start with Russell Westbrook, figuring out what they do with him, whether that means a buyout and then you stretch out his salary. Do you do that? Do you decide to keep him for another year? Do you say, okay, we've seen some flashes uh, the last few weeks here. Does that mean that maybe keeping him on a $47 million deal next season becomes a little bit more palatable? Or do you do what I think is the most likely option? scour the league and try to find a trade potentially using the two first round picks they'll have available in 2027 and 2029 to try to get a deal done. I think that's going to be option number one for the Lakers. And then if that doesn't pan out, they'll start to look at other things, but that Westbrook contract and what they do with it, everything else will, uh, will kind of play off of that this summer. So moving to the other side of the Western conference, the Phoenix Suns made the finals last year and everyone did what they could to discount them. And this year they've come back and they're now sitting at, I believe, 60 and 14 the last I checked. And they're going to be the number one seed in the West by far and the best record in the league by about six games. So what do you make of this Phoenix team as you head closer to the playoffs? Yeah, I mean, I was one of the ones saying that if uh, if everybody was healthy, then the Phoenix Suns probably don't wind up getting to the Western Conference Finals. That part of it was that they ran into teams last year in the playoffs that were injured, and credit to them. They have been absolutely phenomenal. They've proven me wrong, proved everybody wrong who was criticizing them last year. And again, you, you, I've been saying all along, you play the teams that are in front of you. It's not the Suns' fault that the teams they were playing last year were, were injured. But what they've done is they've come back this year And they've proven that it wasn't any kind of a a fluke, that they really are just that good of a basketball team. And I think they are also evidence for when we look at at the Lakers. Now, poorly, the pieces have fit. The Suns, just everybody fits perfectly. Everybody understands their role. All of the pieces know exactly what they need to do when times get tough and it's crunch time and they need to find a shot. They know exactly where they're going to find that shot and how they need to execute in order to, to do it. They've been phenomenal. They should be the favorite to win the whole thing. Uh, But I think there's a number of other teams that can get into the mix as well. But the Suns have had a fantastic season and they could very well wind up being the team to hoist the trophy in June. So is Memphis the next team closest to them? Because we're both in agreement that they're, you know, well and above everyone else at this point, especially in the Western Conference. So is it Memphis? Is it Golden State? Who's kind of the next team in the Western Conference at this point? I'm going to go with Golden State, and now that is with the big asterisk that that's with a healthy Steph Curry, and we got to see what happens with with him. But if he's healthy, I think one of the things that you see historically in the NBA is that it takes taking your lumps in the playoffs for a few seasons for some teams before, particularly for young teams, before they can figure out that secret secret sauce of what it takes to win in the postseason, and that may wind up being Memphis. This year, they've been they've been a great story. They've been a fantastic team, but the Golden State Warriors have the veterans that know how to win a championship and come playoff time, that tends to matter. So in terms of power rankings for the playoffs, I would put the Warriors slightly ahead of the Grizzlies, but that is by no means counting the Grizzlies out. They have been phenomenal. They have found ways to win both with, with and without John Morant. It wouldn't shock me if they were able to get through, but I would put the Warriors slightly ahead of Memphis just because of that experience factor that they've got. How do you feel about the Denver Nuggets at this point? Because the Denver Nuggets are clearly have, if not the MVP of the league, the second guy behind Giannis or Embiid at this point, but they also don't really have much else. It feels like he's carrying a, a roster that looks similar to the 2018 Orlando Magic to 
you know, the sixth seed in the Western Conference at this point, and they would be matched up with the Warriors in the first round, which would at least be kind of interesting. I feel like the Denver Nuggets are that that what could have been team. I mean, injuries to Michael Porter Jr. and Jamal Murray. That's brutal. I mean, this is on paper and and in reality, right, in terms of the amount of money they paid. This is the group. This is the team that they said this team can take us where we want to go, can take us all the way. And now you're missing two key pieces like that. That's tough because really they could be a major threat in the Western Conference. We'll see what winds up happening with those two guys, Jamal Murray and Michael Porter Jr. But we're just running out of time. We're running out of time, not just to, to get players healthy, but to reintegrate them into a rotation. That takes a little bit of time to get guys on the same page again when you haven't been playing all season with these guys. So that's going to be something that will be a challenge for them if they're healthy and if they have a full season under the belt. I think they can run with just about anybody. I think they were made some smart moves in terms of committing to the players that they've committed to. I think they've got the pieces that can be a competitive power in the West. But, man, these injuries have just derailed them. I would love to see them get healthy and go on a run, but I, I feel like time is running out this season. It might be more of a next season thing where we see the Nuggets start to really show what they can be. That's interesting because I know Jokic's contract comes up at the end of next season. And so there's a pressure packed off season for Denver coming up. The other team that had a pressure packed, you know, kind of six months leading up to where they are now is Dallas. And Dallas is interesting because other than keeping Luca in place, they changed coaches, they've overhauled their roster, and they still find themselves as the four seed in the Western Conference, which is interesting and also something that I kind of associate with Luca being one of the highest usage rate players in the league. And that's going to help them regardless of who's playing around him. So Dallas has a new team. They're trying to kind of take the next step. I don't know what that means exactly for them, considering they lost in seven last year to the Clippers. And if Luca doesn't injure his neck and his back, they might win that series. So what, is the expectation for Dallas going into the playoffs this year. Yeah, I mean, the Mavs, Luka, one of the best players in the NBA. He's a guy who can win you a series pretty much on his own. The question is, can they take that that next step? They moved on from Kristaps Porzingis. Spencer Dinwiddie has done some things for them coming in. Um, they've got a lot of question marks, and you can look at them and say, well, they're probably not in that that same tier as, certainly not Phoenix, but also not the same tier as the Grizzlies as the Golden State Warriors. Uh, but Dallas is still a team that can make some noise in the postseason again. And part of that is just Lucas brilliance. But also you've got some guys like like Jalen Brunson that can go out there and cause problems. He can get hot for a game or two and get and uh, and get you through. So this is a team that I don't think you can overlook, but you're not ready to put them into that top tier just yet. And that's always been the question for the Mavs. It's how do they get there? How do they get to that next tier with the contracts they've got on the books? With the assets that they've got available, what can they do to put the right pieces around Luka Doncic? I don't think they've found that just yet. I don't think they've got the team where they say, yes, this is it. This is the team that ultimately will, will win a championship. They're still looking for that guy to put next to Luka. Maybe they find that this summer. I think they can still have a strong playoff run. But without that key second piece, I don't think they're ready to go make a serious championship run. Not quite yet. So... Last but not least, this is a question I ask every single year. My answer is always the same, but I'm interested to see what you have to say. Can you trust the Utah Jazz? Because my answer is always no. Don't. Whenever <laughs> you believe in the Utah Jazz, don't believe in the Utah Jazz. But do you believe in the Utah Jazz? 
no until they until they prove us prove otherwise right i mean this has been historically that's been the big thing with, with utah is they look good during the regular season their offense clicks things are going well but then come playoff time when teams can focus in on just them instead of okay we're playing the utah jazz on a random wednesday in january when you can't spend a bunch of time preparing for just that team then they can come out and they can catch you and the balls move in and they're hitting shots and, the, and they can be tough to deal with Come playoff time, teams lock in on exactly what you do, and the Jazz haven't been very good at adapting to that, and that has largely sent them home come playoff time. So that's always the question around the Utah Jazz, and until they prove us wrong, we have to assume that the same thing is going to happen again because we've seen this happen so many times. So I'm going to say no, you can't trust them at this point. I don't have them coming out of the Western Conference. They have the talent to do it, but until they show us that they can win in the playoffs – I'm, I'm not going to have a lot of faith that they're going to get it done. Last year was the tipping point for me when it's Terrence Mann doing it to you mm-hmm. at the end. It's just something's going to happen. I'm not sure what it's going to be, but something is going to end up happening to Utah. But we'll have to wait and see. This year, they're matched up against Luka in the first round. That would be probably the most fun first round playoff matchup. Absolutely. Luca against Donovan Mitchell. There's some excitement there. Could be could be some fireworks. And either way, in that scenario, we're going to see this a lot across the NBA. But in that scenario, either way, you've got you've got a pretty good team that's going to be going home. So we'll see what what happens there. Again, I would be I would be leaning towards the Mavs being the team that gets through. But I mean, Donovan Mitchell is really good, too. You can't count out the Jazz. But again, until they until they prove that they can get it done in the postseason, yeah, it's. Uh, I don't think I can have a lot of faith in them.